Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 106, Davos 2, and A Clash of Kings, part 2. You are invited to a baby shower, and I am one of the hosts of this baby shower, Chloe. It actually is quite wet around this baby shower this time, and I am another one of your hosts for this baby shower, Eliana. (laughs) Thank you for coming. We did our best with what we could for this. It was a very last-minute baby shower, but Melisandre called us, and we said we'd see what we could do. Yeah, we brought her a boat. That's uh, among the gifts that we brought. No cradles, unfortunately. What new child is this? <laughs> what child is this who came <laughs> to kill Courtney Penrose? R.I.P. That's the song. No one, no one ever said I was great at lyrics. You know, no one ever said you're great at lyrics, Eliana, but we have had other compliments that usually end up in our iTunes reviews oh. about your quirks. <laughs> You could call oh, that. I thought you were going to say about my quirks. musical taste, but that that works too. I'm sticking by what I said. Your quirks. Yep. And this was from our friend Hotter Potter, who said, "Wow!" Exclamation point! Exclamation point! And I think the two exclamation points really sell me on this review. But I want you to read me the rest of it. I mean, there's a lot that's good in this review. And Hotter Potter says, "Found my way here recently after Chloe did a guest appearance over at History of Westeros." Love your humor and your analysis of the women in A Song of Ice and Fire. All your hot takes are canon, as far as I'm concerned. Then, for your stats purposes, I hit subscribe as soon as Eliana started singing about Skimbleshanks slash Steelshanks, so I'm pretty sure that more Cats references is a sure win. And thank you, thank you for that, Hotter Potter. Thank you for your support of our podcast, but most importantly, me, our podcasts. Ooh, how come... Does that exist? A podcast podcast? I don't want to give you any ideas, so I'm not going to dignify that with any other response. Well. (laughs) It's a great review. Thank you for the review, Hotter Potter. Thank you. you. And I'm glad you enjoy our analysis of Women in a Song of Ice and Fire. I do think sometimes we kind of skip out on a very rarely seen perspective in this series, which is the male perspective think we're really missing out on it but we do our best here with what we can do do and you know what what we miss we make up for it with pizzazz and musical numbers that like skimble shanks the railway cat the cat on the railway i can probably sing most of a uh, memory too it's not something that's going to happen on this podcast but uh, is it danny alone in the dothraki sea could be or or uh, no 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 sorry that that's an American tale again. I was thinking about the Starks again being far apart. Um, oh, that's sad. Yeah, so we can talk about memory eventually one day and how my family used to force me to sing it in front of people. That was traumatic. Anyway, until hmm. then. Today is not, yeah, today is not the day for that. Today's a different kind of traumatic. Maybe, yes, we're going to live some other trauma today, not Eliana's trauma, and I was going to call this a lightning round, which is really just explaining what we did in the very last episode. Uh, Maybe it's more like the Storm Lord round, since we're going to Storm's End at Chapter's End. But this is a lightning round on what we did last episode. Davos spent the last couple weeks delivering mail around the realm, stopped defunding USPS, and trying, failing, to talk Stannis down from his upcoming battle with Courtney Penrose. 
But instead of talking Stannis down, Davos apparently gets himself talked into <laughs> going along with Melisandre, who invites him to a baby shower as her plus one. Except Courtney Penrose is the one who's taking the baby shower. Um, that doesn't. That doesn't sound. It's good. not how baby showers usually work, but that's how this one does. It is gonna, in the words of what is that, Lady Gaga, that Chromatica song, "Rain Down on Him," "Rain on Me." I don't know what it is. I don't know. I'm trying to be topical. It's failing. But to be topical, Stannis and Davos have arrived back at camp after the parlay. And the smell of horse dung is sticking to the wood smoke and cooking meat. Stannis commands the lords to disband and meet in an hour for a war council in his pavilion. Davos and Melisandre ride for the pavilion, which is a large canvas soldier's tent dyed yellow gold. The royal banner is the only thing marking it as a king's tent and the guards as well. Queen's men on spears, the badge of a fiery heart sewn on their own heart. Wow. I do love the language here that describes Stannis' pavilion. It very much, in my opinion, screams the same message as the cold but shining sword. The language here is the tent had to be large since it was there his lord's bannerman came to council. Yet there was nothing grand about it. It was a soldier's tent of heavy canvas. Dyed the dark yellow that sometimes passed for gold. Definitely gives you mm. a sort of fool's gold or fake gold kind of idea yes. to Stannis. I was just going to say, that is what we call fool's gold, son. Fool's gold. Ugh, I didn't even think about that. That's such a good call out. Well, the guards right now, they're relieving Melisandre of the standard that she carried, and Devin prepares to lift the flap of the tent for the king. I've had some growth, some character growth in the last wow. week. I commented last week. I know not often does that happen. I commented last week about Melisandre's placement in the parlay audience, if you recall, and she was in the back. I don't really think I paid enough attention to her carrying the standard and how that kind of fits into it. So this week I'm going to. Standard bearing is a super honored position that goes back to Roman and medieval warfare, and it's a major target for other troops. In Roman legions, they're called a signifier, carried on a standard with phalarae or discs and medallions and other things mounted on a pole, which could be like a leaf-shaped spearhead or an open human hand, a wreath to show an award or honor, generally something to display the oath of loyalty taken by the soldiers. Now, this isn't a normal battle to the eye that we're seeing. Melisandre carries Stannis' fiery banner in the back next to the Onion Knight, kind of makes it feel like a bait and switch. Melisandre is presented at the start of the chapter in the parlay as a woman, standing in the back, made to hold the banner at this peaceful discussion, with the dazzled armed men out in front. But by chapter's end, Melisandre has become several gods, not just the mother and giving birth to the stranger, but also the warrior as she's sending her child mm. forth to kill Courtenay. The whole situation is presented like a parlay, but Melisandre's position in the back holding the banner is most important. Because, like other standard bearers, for Stannis, if Melisandre and that fiery stag flag fall, so does he. And without her, they don't capture Storm's End without considerable bloodshed. And this is where games like Capture the Flag what? come from. Literally, yes, yes. Huh. I liked that game. Yeah, well, it's a war game, so. Yeah. Back when people used to 
play games with each other in real life. And I think that's interesting what you're saying about Melisandre and, and the flag, especially when it comes to the Blackwater later mm-hmm. on. Yes, the uh, middle. Never done before. Yeah. <laughs> Blackwater 72 hour boogaloo. <laughs> Stannis hands his crown to Devin, commanding cold water and cups for two, party, sending Melisandre away so he could have a private discussion with Davos. He threatens to make Davos a lord someday, meaning he'll have to suffer these councils with the braying mules of the kingdom. And boy, do the mules love to hear themselves bray, he says. He explains that once in a while they come up with something useful, though. Just every once in a while. Mules seem pretty cool. I could make that a tear. I like mules. So does Maya. Oh, you're right. Hmm. I forgot the name of Maya's mule. I'll have to look that up sometime. But here, you know, as you said, it's a party with some cups of water. Stannis making some big asks here, right? Stannis is about to make a really, really, really big ask at Davos. And I think that this exchange really calls to mind again, Robert visiting Ned and being like, Ned, guess what? I came all this way to make you my hand. And then immediately after in the crypts, like first Ned like falls to his knee and she's like, oh my God, I'm honored. And Robert's like, no, 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 it's not an honor. You know, you're going to wipe my shit. Right. He says this is a huge burden. But whereas Ned, he was the Lord of Winterfell, right? Warden of the North and and has a lot of control. He has the power to say no to Robert if he wanted to. And then even later on, when he and Robert clash in terms of their values, he has enough power to refuse being hand. He doesn't do it just yet. He does it later on, of course. And Davos isn't in that same position, right? The power is completely different. Whereas Ned is like, I'm still going to be fine, right? If I go back to Winterfell, live my life how I wanted to. That's not the case, because for Davos, everything's contingent on Stannis, his god, right? It's not just about Davos's morals, because Ned and Robert have a dynamic that offers Ned more freedom. They grew up together, right? They have, they grew up as equals in the Vale, until they're like, what if Robert was king? I mean, there's a whole rebellion, uh, not just his rebellion, a lot of things happened. But we see in Ned's chapters, you know, he's doing the same thing as Davos in many ways, right? He's using, for the most part, softer language initially when it comes to Robert because he's like, I don't know who this guy is anymore, right? It's been several years. He find, He's wondering if Robert, his friend, has been replaced by Robert the King and Catelyn warns him of as much. And that's the issue that Davos ends up dealing with when it comes to Stannis right now. He's constantly stepping on eggshells until later on, when, but he's trying to be palatable to what Stannis he he thinks Stannis wants to hear but Ned can say all these things right and if Robert pulls anything I mean if Robert tries to fight a war war against North well Ned stood up to one king before right so when Robert asks Ned do something that would disgrace Ned entirely and that goes against his very morals Ned can say something in a small council, some of the most powerful men in the realm, and be able to hold his own and be able to make a point of saying, Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Ares Targaryen for if not to put an end to the murder of children? Davos doesn't get to do that because Stannis gets to dictate what his morality is and hold his family and everything that he's gotten hostage. And, you know, it's it's just really convenient when Stannis is like, you know, Renly died because the Lord of Light willed it. It's really convenient that the Lord of Light's will kind of matches Stannis' own. And for what it's worth, 
I think in a lot of other ways, Stannis is also exhibiting some hypocrisy with regards to what he was saying about how people regarded Robert. He was always like, coming back to that thing of, he's like, Robert could piss in a cup, and everyone's like, this is such awesome fucking wine. And Stannis is like, I give them water. And they're like, suspicious about it. And Stannis is super mad about it. And I think the fact is that Robert's mercy, the reason why people felt that way is his mercy turned men's fortunes from things like fated death for treason into a trusted advisor. Whereas here, Stannis has invited someone that he should be trusting, someone who has like followed him, promises to serve him. He's offering him a cup of cool, cold water, which should be very safe. And what he's asking him is to drink moral poison. He's asking him to do something that goes against the very core of what Davos wants to be and do. The very core of what he has wanted Davos to be and do, or said he wanted Davos to be and do, obviously. Actions speak louder than words, in my opinion, that's all. And, you know, the whole finger thing is kind of like, so I'm still stuck on that. Uh, They're they're not stuck on Davos, but I'm stuck on them. Um, No wonder uh, people are suspicious of his water. Like, what comes with this? Yeah, because you chop fingers off, bro. <laughs> you just do that in your free time. I, I love that Robert's big vice, besides being too trusting, obviously, and thinking like, oh, things will work out and be fine, uh, is that he died from wine, right? That was one of his big vices as well. That's how he drowned the world out. And it's like Stannis has to do everything the opposite of Robert. Like he can never, never enjoy wine, right? Because that's a hidden dagger in the dark. Like you're saying, he has to do the opposite of this. Yeah. Trying to differentiate himself from his brother's shadow. Devin brings the men their water that we were talking about. Stannis adds a pinch of salt into his, and Davos is like, <laughs> I could use a hell of a drink right now. This has been a stressful ass day. And I do think it's interesting that Stannis adds a pinch of salt to his water. I'm just saying, does it mean that we should take everything that Stannis does or says, especially when it comes to moral conviction, with a grain of salt? And I am, in fact, not actually only making a pun there. I'm actually being very serious. No, I think you're right. Especially, I mean, Davos certainly should take everything he says with a grain of salt shit. (laughs) I'm just saying, he needs to look out. I really worry about that guy. Uh, Stannis adding the salt to his water reminds me a lot of just some stuff I've read from like religious medieval texts and medieval texts and that whole myth of like they didn't have readily available water is very silly water was definitely available many texts put focus on it it's just wine tasted better and sometimes it was more available Uh, let's face it water tastes like nothing they were like we have this beautiful fruit vinegar juice like why not drink this instead I mean, by the 13th century in London, they had built the conduit with pipes bringing fresh water in. It's it's a non-starter. So more related, it reminds me of some religious medieval texts and how they treated water. Some accounts would say that saints abstained from alcohol and they would drink water only. And some austere communities as well advocated for relying on water. There were medieval handbooks of penance that often punish people by taking away finer food or drink in the face of wrongdoing, for example, uh, including taking away wine and making them drink water and being pure. For an example, there's an 11th century writer, Bouchard of Worms, who explained, (laughs) of worms, If thou hast sworn by God's hair or by his head or made use of any other blasphemous expression against God, if thou hast done so but once unwittingly, 
Thou shalt do penance for seven days on bread and water. If, after having been upbraided for it, thou hast done it a second or third time, thou shalt do penance for fifteen days on bread and water. So, I mean, it, it fits so well that Stannis seems to be in this perpetual state of penance, right? Like, he's trying mm. to somehow absolve himself of this shame that he hasn't brought glory in the, the shadow of Robert, right? Or that is pain at Renly. And I just thought it was very interesting to think of it in a way of Stannis being pure. Like that uh, Frank from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia moment where he's covered in Purell hand sanitizer on the ground, half nude, and it's like, I've got to be pure. That's Stannis. That's him. I think I actually remember that. I haven't watched It's Always Sunny since like over a decade, which I know oh, is Oh, it's memorable. But then it's I watched memorable. like three seasons in one night. I stayed up all night. It was a... Hell of a time. He's just like a worm on the ground covered in Purell, and he's just like, I just want to be pure. That's Stannis. Uh, He just wants to be pure. That's the other thing. Like, he just wants to get that fast track of devotion to power. He's like, how, what, what's, how can I cheat this? How can I cheat code this? There's an essence of him that is a little also holier than thou. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, he does it here, right? When he, Especially even when he talks about all his mules of lords around him. He's telling Davos what he expects that he's going to hear in his next council. Like, it's like, Lord Valerian would tell him to storm the walls at first light with grapnels. And he's like, the younger mules are going to love it. Estermont's going to say, let's do a year-long siege. Just like the Tyrells and Redwine did with Stannis. Then you're going to have Bryce Curran and the rest are going to plead for single combat and that undying fame that comes with it. I do love the beginning of Stannis' crew with these sweet summer nights, many that have come over from Redley's camp, uh, and just the the air of all the glory they want. And it's so sad because we get it so perverted as we get through to Adoda, right? I feel this is a perfect intro for House Karen, or to give more attention to House Karen, I should say. Their semi-canon words from the World of Ice and Fire app are, No song so sweet. And Karen is singing a sweet song indeed, this whole chapter about his prowess in combat. House Karen's actually a pretty interesting house. They're Lord of the Marches, but it's nothing but a title. They have no extra rule over marcher lords or anything. And if you recall, one of the boys Brienne was to marry was a Karen, Brian Karen's younger son, who died of a chill. But to bring it back to something we've talked about a tiny bit on Patreon with Aegon III, there was a Lord Karen on his council who helped with the whole rebuild Westeros better bullshit that was happening then, though only for about a year. It's interesting to see him on Team Stannis, the new front runner for rebuild Westeros, though I'm not really sure what infrastructure they're rebuilding, but, you know, interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I mean, we are in quite a bit of a war right now, so interesting. Stannis asks, well, Davos, what would you do? And Davos says, well, I would leave and take King's Landing because the Lannisters actually are our enemy and Penrose doesn't have the power to harm us or do anything more than this. He's like, once we attack and dethrone Joff, the rest is Stannis's and Tywin, as they know at the moment, Tywin is heading west to defend Lannisport, not, you know, back to King's Landing for like the Blackwater or anything. Um, He's not right now, right? Uh, Stannis tells Devin, you know, Devin, your father's pretty clever, and that I wish I had more smugglers in my service, 
really really laying it on there, Stannis. Uh, but Davos, he says, is wrong about one thing. He says there is, in fact, a need for him to take his ancestral home. He says, If I leave Storm's End untaken in my rear, it will be said I was defeated there, and that I cannot permit. Men do not love me as they loved my brothers. They follow me because they fear me, and defeat is death to fear. The castle must fall. Hmm. Hmm. You know, being Stannis just means grit your teeth in your rear. Uh, Lots going on. But no, no, interestingly enough, they're both semi-right. There's something about this that always made me wonder why Cersei wasn't more focused on, like, taking Storm's End ahead of time, especially since it's the ancestral seat for her sons in the end, for Tommen. Like, if if Joffrey is king and doesn't die, Tommen needs to have a place to go to and have little lordlings there and, you know, carry on the family legacy and all that. And it kind of shows that short-sightedness. Like, if you don't have your ancestral home, that doesn't really hold up your claim. But interestingly enough, Davos does have the right of it because King's Landing is a mess right now. Last chapter comes off the riot where people don't have food or housing. The Lannisters are walking the streets as royals with no repercussions for what they've done to the city until, you know, this riot. And the real shadow binding we end up seeing is that by waiting and letting the Lannisters calculate and come up with plots and plans and schemes to see themselves safe, like Tyrion with the chain, keeping Tommen quote-unquote safe, the small folks still cling to Renly's ghost, not Stannis. That's the true shadow binding that gets done, is Garland in that suit. Stannis is too wrapped up in his image as a king and his glory over his brother's memories that the small folk cheer for the ghost of Renly who dared to save the city and Stannis ends up the villain who attacked it. That's so interesting what you're saying about that being shadow binding. It's, uh, he's putting on that face, right? The way that the shadow Mm -hmm. at the end has Stannis' face. Yeah. And... You know, uh, what you were saying right about it does make sense why he needs Storm's Ed. I mean, we see the consequences of losing Winterfell in this very same book, right? This kind of portends that importance when it comes to Theon taking it out from Rob's army. But also that idea of why doesn't Cersei try to take Storm's End? And I mean, why doesn't Tyrion as well? And I think that does have a bit to do with Tywin's host heading west King's Landing does, as you said, it's a mess. They're they're a little afraid. They feel like they're not ready for an invasion from Stannis. It's why they start laughing. Like, Cersei and Tyrion are so relieved when they're like, are you fucking kidding me? Renly and Stannis are fighting each other because they are legitimately afraid of Stannis, right? Yeah, they're they're laughing. They're like, wow, I can't believe we lucked out like this. And we can see how afraid Cersei is actually of Stannis, even at the Blackwater, right? She's like, I would rather die then face Stannis, and that's the plan that she has for her. You're not alone, Cersei. Most of Westeros feels that way. And, you know, I'm reminded of this because not a cast is entering Blackwater territory. I love that we once more will really? be covering a thing similar. Yeah, they are entering Blackwater. Uh, the Sansa and Sandor episode this week recorded before Blackwater, uh, before everything really pumps off. So they are getting to Blackwater soon. And Cersei at Blackwater... Uh, Around then, when when Sansa gets her period and Cersei at Blackwater, Cersei says that love is poison and it'll kill you all the same. Like, you are weaker, Sansa, if you love more people. 
But then, of course, we have thoughts from Catalan in a different part of the books where she thinks that laughter is poison to fear. So it's really interesting to see how mm. these two thoughts regard everything. And, of course, you have Sansa at the Blackwater thinking, when I'm queen, I'll make them love me in comparison to all this ruling through fear. I know that we need to stop talking about Stannis, but it's interesting that idea of laughter is poison to fear and that, I mean, no one fucking laughs at Stannis, right? Stannis doesn't even fucking laugh at Stannis. Yeah, so, the, he's laughed, what, three the whole times? Point. Yeah, actually, we did with see him. one of them earlier this episode, never mind. He, but that's with Davos, it's not with yeah. people. You don't see it publicly. This is seen in the eyes of his smuggler. Yeah. Stannis is, like, laughing in front of Davos, and he's pulling a Bill Murray. He's like, and no one will ever believe you. <laughs> this ever happened. Uh, he does it quickly, his laughs, right? But in just like this, right, what he has to do here at Storm's End, he has to do it quickly. Dornish swords are waiting in the mountain passes to sweep the marches. Highgarden, of course, has the height of Renly's power, 60,000 foot soldiers. Not all of them, as we know, defected to Stannis. And the men he sent to retrieve them, Errol and Parmesan Crane. <laughs> Jean Parmesan Crane had still not returned, and it's likely... Loras had taken the army for himself by now, which, what resume builder? Davos begins to tell him what Salador San said, but Stannis is like, I don't want to hear it. He thinks that Salador thinks only of gold, and his head is full of dreams of the Red Keep's treasure. Is that <laughs> Cersei's vagina? Yes, that's Cersei's cunt where the gold is kept, as we ah. know from Robert Baratheon. Yes. I did want to rewind now that I think about it. The situation where it's likely Loras had taken the army for himself by now. Does that make you think about later vibes for Loras at all with Dragonstone? Dude, I hope so. I mean, I still worry about that boy, but... I, I worry about that boy, but I really want to see... Loras has the potential for such interesting character development. He does, and alas, will he get it? He's going to be a great foil if if he survives to... John Connington, right? The king, prince mm. that he loved. Anyway. There's this line we get from Stannis about Salador San, and Stannis says, The day I need military counsel from a Lysine brigand is the day I put off my crown and take the black. Interestingly enough, the next two people who take Storm's End will have a free cities or Valyrian advisor, right? Orion Waters for Cersei and Lysono Mar for Aegon. Yeah, so, you know, Stannis went through all that fucking trouble just to lose the goddamn castle anyway, but he was trying to get Edric Storm anyway. He, he was telling Davos, it's about the castle. It's not about the castle, it was about the boy. <laughs> Whatever. But there's something about that line of the Lysine Brigand, the day I put off my crown, take the black, that makes me pause and wonder, like, I'm sure there are people who take this line to have meant Stannis taking the black, because he does go and aid the Night's Watch, of course, of course, and there's, like, all those parallels he has with the Night's King, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. But, like, while I'm here, wilding out on my own podcast, uh, part of me wonders if that moment when Stannis is so desperate, right, that he removes his crown and takes the black, could that be him relinquishing, rather, his kingship and donning mourning clothes, not the Night's Watch? black because after mm. all we see from Circe in Wester's black is still the color of mourning and you know Stannis is about to do a lot of shit that might involve some mourning for family members or something I sure would say it's a wake up call to some Whoa. fans that's for a sure 
a wake oh, up call. Oh, amazing. Uh, morning. Uh, wake. Uh, we're going to hell for this. We should start a podcast. Oh, we should. What should you we know, call it? Not this. So <laughs> interesting. Because he's finally letting himself mourn, kind of falling upon his flaming sword in a way. And I used to really like all those commander theories, those Lord Commander theories for Stannis for the Night's Watch back when I liked Stannis. We all have a redemption arc, everyone. So I'm just saying I used to like Stannis. Now I don't. Uh, I haven't really thought about that theory in a while, though. And something else that kind of just popped out is Edric is later whisked off to Lease. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that he says, like, oh, the day I start trusting a Lysini brigand, well, that's where Edric ends oh. up with Lord Eastermont, isn't it? It is. And we do talk about that quite a bit also in our Egg on the Third episode. And yes, we did. And there's a little bit of that. There's that theory that maybe Aegon Six, Black Fire Garion, whatever, will be, uh, whatever you want to effing call him, Egghead, maybe Ooh, he Egghead. Will be bringing Edric back as his Storm's End Lord, you know? Yeah. Lord Extramont. I've always liked that. That was like, that's where Tyrek went. So the Estermont, so this is just something I was thinking randomly for no reason the other day. And you know how George, like, really is into turtles, and the Estermont mm-hmm. sigil is turtles? Is there, like, maybe something with where George grew up, or his childhood, or youth, or whatever, with the turtles that's, like, an eastern mountain or something? Because that, that's what I think Estermont sort of sounds like it might mean. And that's that's it. That was the thought. Turtles, and there's a connection. Eastern mountain that. time. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, like... I don't know, I'm just... No, but I mean, we know that Turtles is uh, George's first true inspiration for all of his fiction, pretty much. Yeah, and... No, it it does make sense. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I like the idea. That's like how there's the giant star turtle in Discworld, uh, who carries the four giant elephants who turn then carry the actual Discworld on top of them. Like, the the oh, idea yeah. in Discworld, no spoilers, It's there's only, like, 50-something books, and it's been out for a bajillion years, but... Uh, Lindy's been trying to get me to read them. They're good, it's just there's a lot, and there's some really good reading guides that tell you, like, don't read this, just read these and read spark notes on this, too. Like, <laughs> save yourself this handful of books. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so basically... I think that's probably a great influence, of course, is the turtles, because they carry the entire world on their back with the elephants, and I thought that was neat. So I'm sure there's a little bit of that somewhere in there as well, in his little turtle war worlds that he started writing this book off of. When he was like a child, making turtles kill each other anyways. Yeah, so, you know, just as the turtles serve George, the king asks if Davos is here to serve him Stannis and Davos is like, yes, I am. And then he tasks Davos with a mission. And all this language of serving, service to Stannis, that Melisandre serves. It does, I will say, set things up quite nicely for later on when Stannis is like, wait, but what about me? Do I serve? Do I serve the realm? Maybe later on in A Storm of Swords? So Courtney Penrose is someone who has served as well in this story, right? Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about him in the last episode and that he treated Edric as his own child since no one else gave a fuck about Edric, obviously, except him. It's sad, but true. I mean, even his own uh, kin, as we learn, just see him as a political piece. And Courtney Penrose uh, has a lieutenant as well who is another bastard, a bastard cousin to the Fossaways, a boy of 20. 
And if Courtney Penrose dies, Stannis says the cousins will likely take control with this Lord Meadows character. Davos reminds him of another 20-year-old he once knew who was who once commanded Storm's End, and Stannis says, well, this one isn't as stubborn as I was. Davos doesn't know why this matters. He's like, Penrose seems to look super healthy. Couple things here, it tickles me to think. Stannis cutting Davos's fingers off by the ripe age of 21 years old is considered this big, crazy, like, Stannis's righteous act. He's a 21-year-old who had too much lemon water one night and was like, I'm going to chop your fingers off because you stole Davos. What fucking 21-year-old is sitting around and is like, I'm going to punish you and take your fingers off as, as a righteous 21-year-old. But have you considered that's definitely a thing that a 21-year-old would think, on the other hand? I mean, on the other hand, Davos has different oh. fingers, Eliana. Oh, wow. I didn't even mean for that to happen. <laughs> You set it up and I just bowled it straight down, yep, strike yep. after strike. Uh, I, I do like the hint, though, that Davos is like, I don't understand what you mean. Courtney Penrose looks healthy. And Stannis then follows up and he's like, Renly looked healthy, too, the night before he died. And Davos feels hair stand up on his neck. Like, those are the words of complicit behavior in this horrible task. And suddenly the reality sets in and Davos is like, wow, I am being tasked to help serve as a firing squad, a covert firing squad for Melisandre's powerful pussy. Like we are firing that murder out at Courtney Penrose straight out of there. Just, and he doesn't even know that yet, but he will. He he has an idea because like at a point he thinks of the term, like I've never been an assassin before. And yeah, as you said, you know, things are sinking in. He's like, he he's like not admitting it to himself, but he knows he's like so. Stannis killed his brother, <laughs> and he gets confirmation of that. Right, Davos is is uh, the one who's crafting a theory in his head. Right now, he's writing up the post on Reddit. He's like, I think Stannis killed his brother. <laughs> Last line Here's my proof. Confirmation. <laughs> yeah. TLDR. <laughs> Stannis, I think killed Redley. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god why did the user delete their account he's like oh god it was true or <laughs> no one else can like refer back to it they're like wait remember that guy who posted that comments like, were locked comments <laughs> were locked <laughs> Stannis says Melisandre has seen Courtney's death in the flames and the manner of it he won't die in nightly combat Her flames don't lie. She saw Renly's doom as well, he says. Melisandre had told Stannis that if he sailed to Storm's End, he would win his brother's power. Davos then protests. Renly was marching against the Lannisters originally, and he begins to say what Renly would have done, but Stannis cuts him off mid-conjugation. Stannis goes, was, would have. What is that? He did what he did. He came here with his banners and his peaches. To his doom. And it was well for me he did. Melisandre saw another day in her flames as well. A morrow, where Renly rode out of the south in his green armor to smash my host beneath the walls of King's Landing. Had I met my brother there, it might have been me who died in place of him. Davos then brings up, you know... If there were two futures, maybe one of the futures would have been an alternate universe where you join each other to bring the Lannisters down. And Stannis is like, no, that sounds fake. Sounds fake. <laughs> yeah, because like, Davos is like, so 
how do you know that these are like different futures? And you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, Davos ends up being right in a way. And I want to talk about why the take on theology that has to do solely around how light works, right? And, and all this is stupid. Because turns out Stannis doesn't know shit about light and no one knows shit about how light works in the story. I'm going to read you another another Stannis line here of There you err, Onion Knight. Some lights cast more than one shadow. Stand before the night fire and you'll see for yourself. The flames shift and dance, never still. The shadows grow tall and short and every man casts a dozen. Some are fainter than others, that's all. While men cast their shadows across the future as well. One shadow or many. Melisandre sees them all. So everyone, I want you all to buckle up. You're going to get something that you didn't think you were going to get on these podcasts. I'm going to go through a slight drawing 101 <laughs> lesson here. As some of you may know, I have an artistic background and lighting is actually, believe it or not, a pretty big fucking deal when it comes to art. And to Stannis' credit, he is right. You know, flames do shift and dance as they grow or ebb, then and that shifting, right, can cause those multiple shadows, but that's because the light source is changing, or there is more than one as the, that light dances, you know, things flicker, etc., and, and light moves fast. But when you have a single light source, all right, you do not get multiple shadows that split. You might get different shadows on your object, such as like maybe a cast shadow or half shadows on the, on the object, right? Like the shadows gradation might change the intensity, but those shadows aren't created by the light. A cast shadow um, so it comes from an object of blocking the light. Those are the shadows that Stannis is talking about, what's cast down on the ground. And you might get some reflective light back on the object, but like that that's not the fucking same, right? That That's from like other objects bouncing the light back. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> so... Artists have to be really particular in how they portray something, because if your shadows are confusing, then your viewer's going to be confused, right? Because then you have a confusing light source. It's not as good-looking of an image, it's not as aesthetic, unless that's your intentional, perhaps, artistic intent. Like, you're doing that on purpose because you want to, to make a certain point in it, you want to portray something, or maybe it's something more abstracted, or maybe that's how things look. But regardless, if there's more than one light source, you just have to be very very careful because lighting is very deliberate, right? An image is not a 3D object, right? You're using light to create the illusion of volume. And light is used to highlight that form and shape. And the point is, if you have multiple shadows, it gets confusing, right? Because what you actually have is multiple light sources. And again, that's why artists are very deliberate in how they set things up for paintings, drawings, etc. for that very reason. I, I encourage you to go look at some of maybe your favorite still life paintings, or maybe some of your, I don't know, favorite Rembrandts. Those have really dramatic lighting, right? Many of these are effective studies, right? Especially for still lifes, because the artists will only use one light source for those still lifes so that they can really get a sense of the form. But the point is, this scene, therefore, this, this, this moment where Stannis is trying to give a lesson on theology to Davos can be read two ways. Because, again, Stannis and Melisandre don't actually know how the fuck light works. 
One of those ways is A, Davos is correct in his questioning, and there is in fact a single shadow that is cast, as we see. Because yes, Renly dies, and yes, at the same time, his armor does appear at the Blackwater, and that spells Stannis' doom. Like, Davos questioning how he must be used to make these prophecies come true, he's like, that's really weird. Stannis is doing the same thing and spelling his doom throughout all of this by killing Renly, adding to his... um power, therefore, when his ghost comes back, that adds to his own mystique. It turns out it's Garland Tyrell. Both of these are true, and that means there's one true light source. Or the other interpretation of this is that there are, in fact, if there are multiple shadows cast in multiple futures, there are, in fact, multiple light sources and not just one light source. And that means that the measure of good and evil via the Lord of Light isn't just one measure. There, there must be other senses of morality. And would you know it, wouldn't you know it? Something interesting that happens when you have multiple light sources sometimes is that you get a lot of those different, not just shadows, but a lot of different tonal shades, those in-betweens, mid-tones. You know how you make those colors? Those different shades? Mm. Shadows? Shades of gray? <gasps> ah, <gasps> like Stanny and Mel? Yes. So wow. today you got not just drawing 101, but a little dash of color theory. Just the tiniest pinch, like that salt. That's I like it. what I have to say about light. Thank you, Eliana, for your beautiful artistic render, we could yeah. say, that you just brought us. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you. You know, Stannis knows that Davos doesn't love Melisandre, no matter how many shades of gray or shadows she can cast or see or fires she can light. Not, not many people really like Melisandre in this camp. Most of them just find her unnatural, right? Like, Guyard thinks a woman shouldn't be his standard bearer, as we kind of mentioned earlier. And others whisper, she shouldn't be in the war councils at all. You should send her back to a shy. That's not how that works. They whisper while she serves and sees in her flames. Davos boldly asks how Melisandre serves, since he couldn't winkle it out of the sun. And Stannis responds, as needed. And now, Stannis commands Davos. He must take a small boat and bring Stannis the boy. Davos protests, saying there are cleaner ways Courtney may yield. But Stannis responds that he must have the boy, Davos. Must. Melisandre has seen that in her flames as well. Which I thought was interesting, because besides the idea of King's Blood, we don't actually know what Melisandre saw in the flames that makes everyone so desperate to get a hold of Edric, right? Yeah, he becomes this obsession with power. It's like a microcosm of Stannis' entire obsession with power. Edric is this symbol of freedom and liberation at first, right? He starts off as a symbol of like, hey, this could free us from the Lannisters, but then it gets perverted in a pathway for power for Stannis. He goes and turns into the body of Christ, from the symbol of power to becoming an ingredient of power, a mixture to put into the power potion Stannis wants to drink. Last episode, we talked a little bit more about cannibalization, to Eliana's delight, especially from our friend Bidonica, who wrote some really good meta over at Tumblr. So if you missed it, check out last week's episode. But Stannis here ends up getting to the point of like, First, King's Blood is powerful for proving things, and then it becomes King's Blood is powerful to drink and absorb all the powers and take over Westeros. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty, it's, it's a steep climb, right? Like, it's so steep that even Davos, as we're going to get to in the future and the chapters to come, goes, this feels wrong, question mark? <laughs> question mark? 
Maybe we're lucky that Stannis doesn't laugh, right? Would it come off as like a crazy, like, villain laugh or something? No, he'd be like one of those stupid nerdy ones that would be like, like a nerdy <laughs> genius <laughs> villain. Yeah, like, <laughs> and my plans have been foiled again by you Davos Onion Knight. Yeah, it would be interesting. Uh, even though I know that it's supposed to sound like a gust of wind, but you know, could <laughs> whatever. Davos tries to convince him that Courtney may actually be looking for a way to yield to Stannis with honor, even if it means his life. But Stannis is, as noted earlier, stubborn. He truly, truly is. More like he had plans for some treachery. There'll be no combat of champions. Sir Courtney was dead before he ever threw that glove. The flames do not lie, Davos. Yet, they require me to make them true. He thought it had been a long time since Davos Seaworth felt so sad. Oh. But anyway, this is how Stannis has been playing with prophecy, forcing them into truth and holding a sword without a hilt, which, you know, bites his ass at the Blackwater, as we mentioned. But until then, Davos has found himself steering a tiny boat. I'm on a boat. How did I fucking get here? Cross Shipbreaker Bay thinking of the difference from the last time he took a smuggler's ship to Storm's End. Last time he brought life in an onion shape. Layers. He brought Shrek to Storm's End. <laughs> the Tyrells and the Red Vines scattered around, and this time it's death, and it's Melisandre and Stannis' ship surrounding Storm's End, and, and Melisandre is hidden in red cloaks on the ship with him, and he takes no comfort from the sea, even though he loves it, and she tells him she can smell his fear. Someone once told me the night is dark and full of terrors, and tonight, I am no knight. Tonight I am Davos the Smuggler again. Would that you were an onion. She laughed. <laughs> I'd laugh too if someone fucking told me I wish you were an onion. <sighs> Anyways, Davos revisiting this watery place actually reminds me of another sea-affiliated POV character in this book, our favorite paralarvae, Theon. This isn't really Davos's crossing of the Rubicon. You know, as we discussed with Theon crossing that one river, he goes over it and then returns change when he decides to come back with the Miller's boys, as again, no man can cross the same river twice, for he is not the same man. It is not the same river. Once more, Heraclitus. That's great. It also reminds me of the River Styx, right? V major River Styx vibes. Mm -hmm. I mean, even down to the etymology, Styx means abomination or abhorrent. Oh. And the water of the River Styx is black and inky and fatal to the touch and fatal if it's drunk. And it's where the fifth circle is, right? Those damned for being wrathful and sullen. Interesting. They're immersed in a toxic black liquid that makes the river up and it circles the underworld nine times. From the University of Texas at Austin. Like the fourth circle of hell, the fifth circle, represented in Inferno 7 and 8, contains two related groups of sinners. But whereas avarice and prodigality are two distinct sins based on the same principle and immoderate attitude toward material wealth, wrath and sullenness are basically two forms of a single <laughs> sin. Anger that's expressed, wrath, and anger that's repressed, sullenness. 
The idea that anger takes various forms is common in ancient and medieval thought. Note how the two groups suffer different punishments appropriate to their anger. The wrathful, ruthlessly attacking one another, and the sullen stewing below the surface of the muddy swamp, but they're all confined to the sticks. So hysterically, Stannis will end up having to spend his later existence in hell with Robert. So hysterically, because Robert's wrath and Stannis' sullenness will, uh, haunt them to the river sticks, I'm guessing. But I think this can be drawn on when we get to Blackwater as well and its inky depths. But it felt about right. Like, this is, that's Stannis' problem. His repressed anger throughout all the years is now manifesting in his tie ready to take over the whole country. Yeah, Stannis, like many other characters in these books, also needs a therapist. And I, I like this. And just it's a quick side note. Kind of fits with how Robert's always like seven hells, right? Sounds like the <laughs> Inferno Seven. That's where he and Stannis yeah. are going to chill forever. That is the funniest part of it. Like you're going to be stuck with your fucking brothers the rest of eternity after you die, Stannis. So don't be so quick to get on this path to glory. Hell is other people. As another <sighs> from another book. Well, technically, play whatever. Anyways, Melisandre asks if Davos fears her or if he fears what they do. And he says, the latter, he says, I fear what you're going to do. And he's like, I'm going to have no part of it. And she's like, "Mm, but you are a part of it. You're the one who raised the seal. You're the one holding the tiller. Yeah, this uh, classic exchange. Are you a good man, Davos Seaworth? She asked. Would a good man be doing this? I am a man, he said. I am kind to my wife, but I have known other women. I have tried to be a father to my sons, to help them make a place in this world. I have broken laws, but I never felt evil until tonight. I would say my parts are mixed, milady, good and bad. A grey man, she said, neither white nor black, but partaking of both. Is that what you are, Sir Davos? What if I am? Seems to me that most men are gray. If half of an onion is black with rot, it is a rotten onion. A man is good, or he is evil. The fires behind them had melted into one vague glow against the black sky, and the land was almost out of sight. It was time to come about. Yo, I don't think Melisandre knows how to cook. You know, for all her fire stuff, I don't think she knows how to cook. I'm going to throw that out there. Wasteful. Actually, though, absolutely wasteful. Like. I would get my hand smacked. I know. I just, like, cut. I I think we've discussed this before. I just cut off the other parts, take off the other parts. I'm like, this part's fine. You and I have both discussed that we've gotten in trouble already for trying to rinse out plastic bags and reuse them this season. That's true. You know, I mean, uh, Melisandre would not last a moment in my kitchen. Absolutely not. Mm -mm. (sighs) Anyway, so there's a lot in this passage. What I find very interesting about this exchange is this idea of someone being either a good person or a bad person because of how it manifests in the context of Davos. And of course, like Stannis' story and even Melisandre's. But that idea of morality here and how, how it works is quite backwards, this philosophy about it, because beyond the connections of how it ties in with power and that those with power get to dictate the moral systems, as we see with Stannis, there's just something I think very strange about the idea of someone either being 
intrinsically from the get-go good or bad, being made good or made bad. And I do think pushing against that or questioning what that means is kind of one of the really big drivers of the entire fucking series. Like, as we discussed with Jamie Lannister's chapters, he's one of the big explorations of this question, right? Goodness and evilness, grayness. But I, I find it just so backwards because, like, it's as though Melisandre and Vistanis, uh, by extension, they sort of define this idea that a person is either good or evil, right? And it, it's quite hypocritical, as we'll discuss later with some other stuff that Stannis says earlier in this chapter. But it feels as though Melisandre maybe has sold Stannis on this narrative that he is intrinsically good. He's the one true king, chosen by the one true god, and Stannis just desperately, desperately wants that in a world... Uh, where people suspect him of poisoning them when he offers cold water, which again, what Davos is doing now, this is the poison. But he wants to be seen as good in a world that constantly suspects him of bad. And so we get that justification that no matter what Stannis does, whether it's burning the gods, killing his brother, killing Courtney Pendros to steal his nephew so that he can use his king's blood for nefarious reasons, i.e. also killing <laughs> him, all of this is fine. And okay, because the idea is that Stannis is, by definition, right, set out at the beginning of this world by uh, Melisandre's theology and philosophy. Stannis is a good person. And by virtue of him always having been a good person, any of the further actions that come from what he does are therefore good, no matter what it is. And it, it's kind of this idea that, like, a good tree can only bear good fruit and a bad tree can only bear bad fruit, coming back to food things. But... <laughs> That one true king... Okay, we did have a pepper plant with rot, and it only bore bad peppers, but anyways. Um, the one true king and the one true god, right? That's from where all morality flows. That's this moral objectivity that's going around this books, which I think that the books are very much arguing against, not just because we're like, wow, seeing this through Davos's POV and that grayness and seeing it, but the book's very structure itself argues against this idea of objectivity at all, moral or not, right? That's why it's structured in such a way that we have different chapters and we have this roving third-person narrative framing through which you see that rationale. And that constant questioning that we see here of Davos as a smuggler feels like it's not just a jab at his status or his class, it's a reminder of his past sins. And it's meant to make him question, like, well, Davos, you've got a criminal record. Are you a bad person? And I mean, if you're not a bad person, not just born bad, right? Prove yourself then by doing good deeds like this, when truly it should be actually the deeds and culmination of those works and, and the impact of all of that, right? All of these are, it's a much more complex qu equation and question. There's not always even like one right answer that's spit out at the end of that mathematical question that leads to the later judgment of whether or not someone is good versus the way here where it's the other way around yeah it does as you're saying it, it, it feels like it's being used as blackmail against davos right his past being brought up to haunt him at every corner to get him into a moral quandary that he normally would say no to because he is a good guy i mean i think that maybe he needs to work on his relationship with maria and knowing other women uh if the dates align which i know george really doesn't think about it in this manner but with the ages, numbers. with the ages of his children, like he's been with Maria since he was like 17, 18, 19, you know, like he and Maria have been together forever. So if he's known other women, 
I'm just surprised that he still would think of it as a, as a sin after these 20 something years. You know what I mean? Uh, I digress. So I feel like it's weird that Stannis is just blackmailing him for this all the time uh, when it's what he's punished him for. And it kind of reminds me of just the justice system in any world of how it pretends it's going to rehabilitate people and pretends it's going to try to help to do so. But then when it realizes that the risk assessment means that getting the risk to fall on that person who they spent the time rehabilitating is cheaper than taking the fall themselves. Like why, why is it a crime then? Just call it not a crime. Yeah. If you're just going to keep using it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, doesn't that make you bad for exploiting a rehabilitated criminal that you punished for being a criminal. You know, like, that's what I feel really, like, I just feel really weird about that plot line. Like, it just feels weird. Or Stannis is like, I'm not part of this. I haven't done anything with it. Whereas, you know, as we discussed last chapter, there's a... Sorry, it was actually this chapter, last episode of this chapter. There's that blurry line of responsibility as we see through Maekar. And that carries through for Davos here, right? Stirring the ship. This is a threesome, ship. yeah. This it is, is. This is your first threesome, guys, and you're and not a, doing hot. You know, it, it's a question that Sansa's going to have to wrestle with later on. Even she's like, "What? What is my role in this?" By wearing the hairnet, right? Even though she was ignorant of it at the time, but you know, it, it's it's a question that carries throughout the series. And you know, coming back to that good or evil when it comes to Stannis, there's a speaking of not a crimes, not a cast brought up the line earlier from earlier in this chapter where Stannis believes as Davos does right that men are mixed or so Stannis says right he's like a good deed doesn't wash out the bad nor the bad the good which I don't know why I quote that sometimes in my life I don't <laughs> like Stannis I just say it every now and then but he also believes that a good deed therefore re- deserves reward and a bad deed punishment it's different from Mel's philosophy and Stannis is operating on something of a moral paradox here then, in that he gets to dole out the punishment and reward. Again, he's operating in that position of God. And we, you know, coming back to theology a little, we talked about this a little, especially in regards to the Stark storyline, that contrast between justice versus mercy. Mercy is going to come up a lot, I think, in the Stark storyline. It already is. Uh, especially in terms of this idea of forgiveness, Stannis says of the men who have defected to him from Renly that he has forgiven them, but he hasn't really forgotten. And my understanding from some biblical theology, not not it's not always the case, but there's that idea that you're supposed to forget the sins that are done against you, and that's something that um happens, right? That that's how like the forgiveness of God works, right? But you know, coming back to Stannis and that idea of goodness, rewards, bad punishment i do think that gives us some insight into why stannis is so salty it's not just that he's drinking salt water which interesting stannis believes right that's why he loves melisandre's philosophy he he ultimately believes that he has been very good he's like why didn't robert like fucking love me or do anything for me and he's salty that he has not been rewarded for the goodness that he's done and how he served robert because good deeds should be rewarded And we'll find that as the story progresses, his fixation on his own goodness then blinds him to the other atrocious acts that he does and the eventual punishment that he's going to bring upon himself because he's so set in this idea that he's been good and deserves that reward and is chasing it. But we already know this thing that Stannis has not accepted, 
because the story has also taught us this, right? The the story mind, as well as, I mean, the real world, has taught us that good doesn't just beget good, nor bad, bad. It's this about us of that notion from the get-go, because it killed Ned. Ned was uh, set up to be our moral compass and died. You know, it's funny that you said that uh, you use that quote in your life all the time, because I always accidentally interchange that quote with a quote from Doctor Who, which is something that you will watch eventually. I'm working on it. Uh, We have other things first, like Gossip Girl. Anyways, important That one I'm going to do. That one's important. Yeah, very important. Doctor Who, though, is important, too, just later. We have many years together, you and me, you know. (laughs) We're going to cherish them. Many years. But the the line in Doctor Who is from uh, the Vincent and the Doctor. It's a Vincent Van Gogh episode, yes. I've seen that one scene. I cry sometimes, even though I've never seen the series. Imagine if you saw the series, you'll be a little baby. I can't wait. I'll get you on it, see? But the quote is, uh, the Doctor says, The way I see it, every life is a pile of good things and bad things. The good things don't always soften the bad things, but vice versa. The bad things don't always spoil the good and make them unimportant. Uh, I always think of that line against this line. That quote always comes into my mind when I think of that Stannis line about uh, men are being mixed, right? That's a mixed bag. And I think the biggest reason why Stannis tries to preach that while maybe not always acting like it is because he desperately wants it to be true. Mm-hmm. He wants to believe it's true, not only about his actions, but about what was done to him. And he wants to be able to forgive his brother for what he's holding and grudging against him. Like you said earlier of him ripping off the crown and donning the black for mourning. Um, I think he's always wanted to be able to forgive and to be forgiven, right? In his family. Yeah, he hasn't experienced mercy or love because, I mean, he comes from a broken family in many ways. Yeah. So he's just been yearning for what he thinks is justice and all of that. That's why 21-year-old Stannis, you know, some people drink too much when they're 21. He chops off people's fingers. Yep. Yep. Normal shit. Normal rich kid shit. Yeah, he's he's fine. Yep, it's fine. As he they pull into the shore, Davos asks Melisandre, so this whole, like, good, bad, gray thing, right? That counts for women, too, right? And she laughs at him. She says, of course I'm good. And she frames herself as a knight <laughs> and calls herself a champion of light and life. And I thought that was a really interesting tie-in to some of the other things that go on in this book. As we said last episode, this is a keystone chapter and Melisandre's about to actually give birth as we all know and Brienne and Catelyn just a few chapters earlier have discussed the birthing bed as a woman's battlefield so it's interesting for Melisandre to call herself a knight mm. Davos says she means to kill a man just as she killed Crescent and Melisandre like, says yes <laughs> <laughs> with that powerful pussy uh, Melisandre says I didn't kill him. I did not. Uh, he poisoned himself, and she was protected by a greater power. I didn't she says, touch him. I did not. <laughs> I did not poison Mr. Crescent. I, I did not. <laughs> oh, hi, Renly. Oh, hi, Renly. Ah, how's the sex life? Um, oh, <laughs> dead. Uh, yeah, dead. Exactly. That is what the sex life is, because Renly's dead, too. But yes, so she says... She didn't kill Renly, either. And I did Davos not. <laughs> Davos names her a liar. 
And I'm just saying, if Melisandre's like, well, she's like, it wasn't me. So I'm like, she's saying it was Stannis, right? So maybe Stannis' cock is powerful? Wow! I mean, like, I'm just saying, like, maybe it is. I don't... That's the real light bringer. He just doesn't want to wave his... (laughs) I think that's too... I don't know if it brings light. Sorry, that's... It brings darkness. That's too, that's too, uh, close to current events. Uh, During the time of recording this. We get a passage. Feel how cold the wind is? The guards will huddle close to those torches. A little warmth, a little light. Their comfort on a night like this. Yet that will blind them so they will not see us pass. I hope. The god of darkness protects us now, my lady. Even you. The flames of her eyes seem to burn a little brighter at that. Speak not that name, sir, lest you draw his black eye upon us. He protects no man, I promise you. He's the enemy of all that lives. It is the torches that hide us. You have said so yourself. Fire, the bright gift of the Lord of Light. I love that fire is described as the gift of R'hllor, who wields it to see in darkness, because of course fire burns and destroys, which is about to become so totally prominent in the waters outside King's Landing during Blackwater. And we see gifts described often as physical injuries, like Sandor describes his burns from Gregor as a gift, much like he's still Gregor's gift, which was a toy knight. And of course, like the bruises that Joffrey gifts Sansa or the black eye Robert gifts Cersei. But with regards to religion or political groups, most of the vanilla religions describe things like plentiful harvests and babies as gifts of the gods. Not a lot of religions or interest groups form the idea of being able to bestow a burning fire or with faceless men who give a gift, which is peaceful, painless death, for example. Uh, Not a lot of people tout that as their tagline. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Even with the, I mean, this, this is a baby. It's about to be a gift here. But the way that they frame some of those euphemisms, right? Like the kiss of life that happens in R'hllor. Actually, that is pretty, that is pretty gifty, you know, coming back from the dead. Anyway, Davos here talks about that bright light blinding the guards. And I kind of thought that made sense in the context of a lot of this story, right? The bright light, the fire, all the flashiness of the tricks that Melisandre does, and then the sword, right? That's going to blind them to the truth of everything, which is that Stannis is not Azor high. Yeah. He's a false god. But he's still the one true king of Westeros. Melisandre helps Davos bring in the sail, <laughs> and he rust them in. <laughs> <sighs> He asks who rode her to Renly, and she says there was no need. He was unprotected. But Storm's End is an old place with ancient spells in its stone walls, walls that no shadow can pass. And Davos says that a shadow is a thing of darkness. Got him! And Melisandre <laughs> says you're ignorant. Shadows are the servants of life, the children of fire. And then says that the brightest flame casts the darkest shadows. Well, I'm sorry I didn't go to fucking shadow school in a shy beyond the fucking shadows, <laughs> Melisandre. I'm sorry I'm fucking poor. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, not everyone got fucking shadow peasant. scholarship. Yeah, sorry I'm a fucking peasant bitch. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> She's probably I'm like, I'm kidding. also a peasant. Try harder. Uh, Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Davos. <laughs> 
Davos frowns and he hushes Melisandre and rows them into the mouth of Storm's End's cliff because water travels, by the way, uh, sound travels on water is what I mean by that. If I'm using real words that go together, sound travels on water and they are entering a tunnel on a rather dangerous cavern that Davos must definitely work through to get them through. Not the most treacherous we'll see Davos at right as we later get him going to Skagos. Uh, which is supposed to be the most treacherous. Can't wait to see more of that in The Winds of Winter. Interestingly enough, the next chapter after this is a John chapter, and this is the chapter that men from the Shadow Tower arrive. Oh. Yes, yeah, so Davos and Mel are currently at a Tower of Shadows, several Towers of Shadows, Storm's End, and John actually goes on to kill a man that seems pretty innocent as well, Corrin Hathian, uh. out of necessity. Not for power, which is what Stannis and Melisandre have kind of built up, but for the sake of the realm. Interesting. Sacrifices. Hmm. Lot to think about there. Right now, people aren't thinking. They're feeling. They're soaked to the skin. They enter darkness. The waters are finally smoothing and the echoes of their breathing surround them. Again, the last time Davos had been here. But this time, uh, he's like, the torches were lighting the tunnel and the darkness. This time actually took him by surprise. He tells her that this is as far as they go, stuck up against the portcullis, unless someone's gonna sneak to let them in. And you know what? No one is. As we enter this cave, there's something really eerie going on here that I feel is very Freudian. So in Freud's essay on the uncanny, he talks about the Heimlich and the unheimlich, the, the idea that what is familiar becomes unfamiliar and, and therefore uncanny and, and a little scary, right? Um, and here in this place, in the cave, you're in, entering this liminal space where both birth and life exist at the same time, uh, as well as death. And I think Shakespeare of Thrones actually covers that quite well. But here in this cave, right? And the cave, of course, uh, is a euphemism at times for the vagina. <laughs> and Melisandre, and this is something that, that Freud explores quite a lot too, and you'll see it quite a bit in even other stories, right? Edgar Allan Poe's interested in things like that, but or or even the earth itself, and the cave is, of course, in some ways, the vagina of the earth. I wish I were kidding. I'm not really kidding. There's a lot of that this episode, but the womb and the tomb become one here, right? And that's Again, some really Freudian things going on, but also, as we said at the end of last episode, this is a keystone chapter in the books, that stone in the middle of the architectural arch that's bridging a lot of things, holding a lot of things in this book together thematically, but in terms of parallels with other things, right? We we talked about those questions about morality, obviously that stretches across this whole series. We have prophecies in this chapter that are tying together the beginning of the books, right? Such as... um what was seen when it came to Renly, and it holds this book together with things that happen later on in terms of the Blackwater. It all comes together here, but it also ties other things together, such as, for example, the aforementioned parts about Theon and the Rubicon. And then we have the infiltration of Storm's End with an assassin, right? And it act in this magic, and it actually feels very similar to another thing that's happening in this book with Jock and Hagar in Harrenhal, right? He and Arya, they go into Harrenhal and then bring death, especially with the mysterious circumstances around Courtney Penrose's, the mysterious circumstances around like a bazillion different deaths, right? In Harrenhal. And then we also have the sneaking of a baby 
here it's a shadow baby, right? Into a place that is so fortified. It's a poison gift or child that's later going to kill. And it actually reminds me a bit of the story uh, that we also get in the same book from John's chapters of Bale the Bard's child uh, being brought into Winterfell. Great points, especially when you consider, again, that Relor's gift is actually this assassination is a gift from Relor. Right, nice. I'm sure that Melisandre would say, "Happy birthday." That's the baby <laughs> shower gift, exactly. And Jack and Hagar gives a gift as well in here. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so it is a gift again. Coming back to that faceless men kind of parallel, and of course, you bring up Bale the Bard, which is coming up in just a bit for the John chapters, which we covered before, and. That even has some of the hints of what Stannis' plot is going to encompass in the future, right? It's going to revolve around the North, and Davos's plot as well revolves around the Sigaric the Deceiver plot from the Bale the Bard story over in Skagos, a Skagosi hero. Uh, Davos is chasing that very tale, so to speak, that direwolf mm-hmm. tale, if you will. So really good callouts, really good thoughts to put this into context. Melisandre asks Davos if they're within the walls, and he confirms that they are, and so her answer comes physically because she shrugs out of her robe, and she gets naked, and she is bursting with child. Gods preserve us, he whispered, and heard her answering laugh deep and throaty. Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. Panting, she squatted and spread her legs. Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. Her cry might have been agony, or ecstasy, or both. And Davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her. Two arms wriggled free, grasping black fingers, coiling around Melisandre's straining thighs, pushing until the whole of the shadow slid out into the world and rose taller than Davos, tall as the tunnel towering above the boat. He had only an instant to look at it before it was gone, twisting between the bars of the porticolis and racing across the surface of the water. But that instant was long enough. He knew that shadow, as he knew the man who'd cast it. Spoopy. So, a couple things, that agony and ecstasy there that comes back not going to dwell too long on this uh, with the Saint Teresa imagery that we discussed. In, that we discussed, um, I think, in the first Davos chapter with the Azorahai mm-hmm. myth, and again, those are these those two opposite things becoming one, like the womb and the tomb, birth and life. But also, most importantly, I want to know how Melisandre's cloak, like how big was that cloak, right? How come this entire time throughout this whole chapter, no one could tell that like she was super pregnant the whole time? Not even Davos when they were on the boat, like and. How how thick are people's cloaks usually, right? Why don't why doesn't anyone know that Melisandre's like bursting with child, as the imagery says? Questions. I want to say that it was like scarlet silks too, and silk isn't very forgiving. It's not, um, unless she was wearing like ten layers of it. I don't know. I don't know. Well, maybe that's where all of Stannis's money is really going. You know, rad ass bitch. It's like still I- summertime ish. You know, she's not like, and they're in the south. It's not like she's wearing like. My understanding, like a huge wool cloak or fur cloak that's going to hide all that. Listen, maybe it's like in The Sims. In The Sims, <laughs> it's three days. Your your trimesters oh. are one a day, and it's three days, and then you birth the kid. 
Uh, and if you have cheats installed and mods installed, you can force the birth to happen early. And maybe that's what she did. And, you know, Stannis is a Republican, so he'd be into that, you know, for her to make sure she had the kid no matter what was happening. Wow. I digress. Something about the language here. He says he knew that shadow as he knew the man who'd cast it. I know that kind of like, it's kind of saying that he knows it. He knows the man who cast the shadow right now, but it also has that tense. Yes, that past tense of as he knew, once knew, as Mm. he once knew this man who had cast this shadow. And obviously it does not tell us, the language does not tell us it's Stannis, but it does it gives itself away that the shadow looks like Stannis because Davos knew what Stannis looked like. Uh, and it does feel like very, I don't know. It just feels very past tense. Like Davos is like, I don't fucking know this guy anymore. He straight up lied to my face and said like, no, I didn't kill my brother. No, I'm not going to kill Courtney Penrose. And then here he is in shadow form coming out of Melisandre's vagina. The last place he crawled inside of the shadow and he's crawling realm. on out. Yeah. The shadow realm. <laughs> Okay, settle down, blue dragon, ice eyes, um, ice eyes, blue dragon. What is it called? Dual. I don't know. Baby blades. Rip it. Let them rip. Shadow baby blades. Let them rip. No, it's Yukio, but... I'm on Beyblades now. So the language in the shadow baby reminds me of another very recent supernatural birth right in the last book at the end of the book. The flames writhed before her like the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spitting their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding, too, she thought. Uh, this feels very much like when Danny gave birth to the dragons in a few ways, right? Like she's giving birth to flame which is flesh, and Melisandre is giving birth to smoke and shadows here, specifically, of course, in the flames writhing around her. And interestingly enough, we had that line from Florent in Davos 1, where he was yes. like, oh, I saw maidens in their yellow dresses dancing. And here, Danny compares the flames dancing, like the woman who danced at her wedding, whirling in their yellow, orange, and crimson veils. Absolutely. And I th- I think that's really interesting. It's a great contrast because here, you know, in that birth that you're talking about with Danny, it's completely encompassed in light, whereas this one's in the darkness, right? And something else that is interesting is there's this language briefly here where Danny, of course, is a queen, Santa is a king, and we have regarding the the birth and davos saw the crown of the child's head push its way out of her and of course yes i know that when children when babies are being born it's called like the crowning as the head comes out but for for george to use that language is feels really pointed in terms (laughs) of what stannis is trying to get here uh of course you know in terms of trying to seize that power after all power resides where Men believe it does, as Barry says in this very book. That's another thing. That's another thing that comes up in this book. That whole idea of shadows, power, influence, and shadows can kill. Oftentimes, a very small man can cast a very large shadow. But I guess this one's, what, not that large of a shadow. It's like an average Stannis-sized shadow. It's very <laughs> literal. So, again, another another uh, keystone moment in this chapter. 
It's weird you point out that the crowning was so pointed because they should really start forming the baby's head. Oh, you're right. As sure. it crowns. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I, I understand I got, I got that maybe it. you, Miss Flathead, wouldn't understand that, I but not. I do have a flathead, everyone. I've seen it. I felt it with my own two hands. It's flat as fuck. All right, on to some real shit. Not like the last hour wasn't real shit, but I have more real shit to bring to this podcast. So Melisandre can't birth her shadow baby without being within the walls of Storm's End to assassinate Courtney Penrose, which brings up a handful of thoughts. Having Melisandre at the parlay, was this also so her pussy knew what to target for the shadow baby? Like, is that she probably needed to know who Courtney Penrose was? I, I'd guess. I don't know how the magic works. You know, I don't know how the sausage is made or the shadow baby's made, but I'd guess she'd have to know. Also, is this akin to Alisanne and her dragon then at the wall? Unable to pass the enchantments? It feels like a similar uh, kind of enchantment. It does. Yeah. Uh, as we know, Stannis will eventually burn that big old godswood, but it has a giant godswood. The old gods still rule here. Legend claims it was built by Durin Godsgrief, the first Storm King, back in the Dawn Age, and he declared a war against the Sea God and the Goddess of the Wind because they killed his family and guests, ruining his wedding to their daughter, Eleni. Durin Godsgrief then built castle after castle until the seventh survived the storms. And in A Clash of Kings, chapter 31, Catalan 3, we get the seventh castle built by Durin that continued to stand against the wrath of the Sea God and the Goddess of the Wind. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed a small boy told him what he must do, a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. Durin's descendants joined the Andals in marriage, and it said the seven, in seven attempts at building it, mean seven gods have influenced its sustainability. We get a great look at the greenery of the Stormlands, just really beautiful, and a story of the sea in relation to the Dornish here. In Ariane, the Winds of Winter 2 sample chapter. So spoilers, if you have not heard it, tune out for just a couple minutes. Dusk found them on the fringes of the Rainwood, a wet green world where brooks and rivers ran through dark forests and the ground was made of mud and rotting leaves. Huge willows grew along the watercourses, larger than any that Arianne had ever seen, their great trunks as gnarled and twisted as an old man's face and festooned with beards of silvery moss. Trees pressed close on every side, shutting out the sun, hemlock and red cedars, white oaks, soldier pines that stood as tall and straight as towers, colossal sentinels, big-leaf maples, redwoods, worm trees, even here and there a wild weirwood. Underneath their tangled branches, ferns and flowers grew in profusion, sword ferns, lady ferns, bellflowers and piper's lace, evening stars and poison kisses, liverwort, lungwort, hornwort, Mushrooms sprouted down amongst the tree roots, from their trunks as well, pale spotted hands that caught the rain. Other trees were furred with moss, green or gray, or red-tailed, and once a vivid purple. Lichens covered every rock and stone, toadstools festered beside rotting logs. The very air seemed green. Arian had once heard her father and Maester Calliot arguing with the Septon about why the north and south sides of the Sea of Dorne were so different. The Septon thought it was because of Durin Godsgrief, the first Storm King who had stolen the daughter of the Sea God and the Goddess of the Wind and earned their eternal enmity. 
Prince Doran and the maester inclined more toward wind and water and spoke of how the big storms that formed down in the summer sea would pick up moisture moving north until they slammed into Cape Wrath. For some strange reason, the storms never seemed to strike at Doran. She recalled her father saying, I know your reason, the septon had responded. No Dornishman ever stole away the daughter of two gods. Hmm. Stannis seems to be toying with the daughter of a new god, and as we later learn, he and this daughter burn down the godswood, which feels like one of the most deeply magical places of this castle, and it feels very likely it was a mix of Children of the Forest and probably Bran the Builder in some iteration with them. Interestingly enough that in Storms and History, daughters like Argella Durandon seems to be a sacrifice, and Eleni, obviously. Uh, and heck, Storms End History, I guess Shireen will be added to that as well. But there is so much history here, right? Jaehaerys was proclaimed king by Rojar here, hastening Magor's downfall. Lucaris Valerian gets killed here as Rhaenyra's envoy when Aemond arrives on Vagar. Arax, his dragon dying as well. Aemond had earlier enjoyed the hunting grounds immensely at Dance's start. The Dance of the Dragons start. Poor suckers, though, because Lucarius was dead from the start. As soon as he set foot, as soon as he touched down off that dragon, dumb idiot. And of course, Prince Daemon Targaryen, Rhaenyra's husband, suggested that storms would be granted to the lowborn Sir Ulf White later, an idea that shocked Lord Corlys Valerian. And Baylor Targaryen recuperated at Storm's End for a year injured in Dorne. So there's a lot of history happening at Storm's End. I can definitely see some parallels to the current plot as far as the Dance of the Dragons and things going on at Storm's End. And with Aegon invading in the Winds of Winter, I'm very interested to see where it takes us. Yeah, I will say that at least Eleni and uh, Argella lived, right? Yeah, (laughs) and didn't burn alive. Nope. They didn't. They actually did it. Um, so, well, shit. But yeah, as, as you said, Storm's End is quite a landmark. Lots of history. Pretty important, especially important to Stannis's heart. I mean, he did hold. He held it for a while and almost died in it yeah. and starved. So, it's kind of funny because that's like that's probably the most interesting thing that happens there, in my opinion. Like, it, it's not that it's not interesting. It's just I think Stannis thinks it's more interesting than it actually is. You know, it's bigger to his heart, to his big old issues going on. I think so. I think that, you know, as we said, it's important in the way that Winterfell is important to the Stark cause, and it looks bad if you don't have your seat. Yeah. But also, as you were saying, you know, that's something that we didn't really think about or touch about until now, so thank you for all this. But, like, yeah, he doesn't want to admit that, like, it has sentimental value. Like, this is, he says to Davos, it's my home, but he doesn't, like, go into, like, yo, I went through a ton of fucking effort to hold this goddamn place. Like, I deserve it. I mean, does he or does he not deserve it? But, like, I can imagine him thinking, like, I deserve this fucking place. Yeah, and maybe, like, I don't know, maybe no one deserves anything. I think that there's an idea that, you know, in, in an ideal world, people get good things, but also at the same time, a world that is completely adheres to this justice of all bad acts are punished <laughs> to the extent that's equal to it, right? First of all, how do you, like, gauge that? Second of all, that's a nightmare, right? That's why the idea of mercy is so important in this story. 
even if you keep it at a strict wrath and sullen level of Robert versus Stannis, Robert knew that he could pick these people off their feet and add them to their cause. And yes, the way that he did it wasn't perfect, and Robert didn't have the best diplomacy in all the realm, as we already know. However, his reign is still going to last longer compared to what Stannis's reign will last. Damn. And that's Stannis the Stannis got to be so that. mad. He's yeah. going to be so mad in the afterlife in the fifth circle of hell when he's stuck with Robert and all Robert can say was, you know, I held the Iron Throne for a lot longer than that, Stannis. And I drink. Drunk and fucked. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess that's Davos too. <laughs> we did it. Everyone, we uh, crossed our own Rubicon. Yes, we went into the River sticks, and somehow we were not stuck in the muddy waters fighting Robert or murking about with Stannis yeah, for the but rest we are, of our existence. We are changed now, you know. Now we've opened this door, this can of worms. I would birth say this that, baby uh, we can never unbirth of the, splitting the episodes. Oncoming storm, you know, it arrived. Yep. Yeah. Well, now that we've split the baby and tossed half of it down the river. Mm-hmm. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. You can tune in. Uh, next week, we will not have an A Song of Ice and Fire episode. We will be releasing La Belle Sauvage episode two to the public. You guys will enjoy it. I can't wait for you to hear it. But if you want to catch up with us on social media, feel free to tweet at us or send us a DM at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you have a thought about today's episode or next week's episode or last week's, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Oh my god, no one has thoughts about Cats and Musical except for Hotter Potter. Acceptable. But yes, as Chloe said, send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, for more thoughts on that, be sure to subscribe to us on Podbean, where all this is hosted. Acast. Pa- Pandora. There's just so many. I got like I got I got messed up recently. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, a uh, Stitcher, other things that people have placed us on, and. Yeah, you can find us Overcast. That's that's another one, and of course, um, iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio, of course, iHeartRadio. And if that's not enough for your RSS feed, you can get a private RSS feed from Girls Gone Canon on Patreon. Patrons in our $5 Stranger Tier and above get special episodes on A Song of Ice and Fire, guaranteed every other month. And, of course, His Dark Materials special episodes every other other month, so tune in for that, as well as Patreon members in the $10 and up tier, which is the Thunder tier, will get immediate access to our Discord server, where we host really fun things like brunch and happy hour once a month, where we discuss ridiculous stuff with each other. So come check it out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Yes, where people share their recipes, not me. Um, well, I share some of my recipes, but someone shared their biscuit recipe recently, which is pretty great. Not going to give away who you're going to have to find out. And also, again, Patreon, we have special episodes and, you know, the La Belle Sauvage episode that's coming out next week, previously far, far released in advance for Patreons. And this month, we are doing a Historic Materials episode where we will be covering Lyra's Oxford, the novella, and that will be this month's special Patreon episode. Yes, 
Thanks again for tuning in. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. And you're going to be another one of my hosts next week, too. Yeah. Alas, you know, I don't think we said Sapeach really much this episode. We really should have. The Sapeach. There was no Sapeach, and that that's a drag, but you know what? <sighs> We're just going to have to wait till next week. Maybe we'll get a new fruit. Whose fruit is it anyway? Bye. See y'all later. <laughs> I had to think about that.